health, parenting, finance, travel, and home improvement. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast. Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm Greg Rodersheimer, your host. Today, we're going to talk about the current state of finances. Looking at the stock market or real estate, they're both hitting record highs. There's digital currency and other commodities that also seem to be on the uptrend. It makes one think that at some point, these investments are going to have to see a downturn. And is there somewhere else that you can look for a way to consistently grow your investments? Here to talk about it is Brian Haney. He's the vice president and founder of The Haney Company, an independent multi-lines agency that specializes in insurance and retirement programs for associations and their executives, business owners, and high net worth individuals. Brian, can you kick us off by talking about your background, and then we'll dive right into the current state of finances. No, that sounds great. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on, Greg. It's, uh, I, the, to make a very, very long story very short, uh, I, I graduated with a journalism degree, so I enjoy communicating. Got right into my first career was actually in banking. And then over the next, you know, 17 now plus years, uh, grew from banking to uh, private wealth to kind of an independent uh, model of of financial practice. And now uh, that evolved to a family owned and operated practice with my father, my brother, and and a team of people behind us. Um, And we kind of have a multi-lines, what we call agency, where we're we're almost a one-stop shop. I hate that term, but we... We are able to do a little bit of everything uh, from employee benefits, retirement plans, property and casualty for both businesses and individuals, life insurance, wealth management. So it's it runs the gambit. I've got you know a half dozen uh, letters after my name. So we love our alphabet soup and specialize in a whole bunch of stuff. So it's just a lot of fun. But it, it, to me, it, it, the simple answer to that you know somewhat complicated question is: I feel like my job is to help people make the financial decisions that they want to make, but they don't know how. Whatever the barrier is, that's where I come in. We're going to figure it out, work through it, and create a strategy to overcome it. To your point about one-stop shop, yeah, people may think that's a cliche term, but I think for people that have their network of financial gurus, it is nice to be able to have at least a cornerstone for some of the conversations. So for example, maybe you do have to bring in somebody for the uh, for insurance or something like that. But hey, at least if you know some of the information or even licensed to do it, that's one less contact your clients have to make. And presumably you already have the relationship. So I do think there is certainly a benefit there. And us I think our conversation will progress. We're probably going to touch on some of those varying considerations. Let's just jump right into the investment side and giving some background for folks as we were trading notes. We've done a lot about the basics of investing on the show, but today's current environment is interesting. I won't necessarily say unprecedented because usually when you get into it, people can find certain similarities maybe in parts in the past, but with the interest rates being what they are, and of course, savings accounts, things like that have been sort of dead in the water for, gosh, quite some time at this point. Stock market, I think, well, I was surprised. I won't say other people, but I was surprised that we had the dip and then of course came right back up. Now we're in the middle of another will there, won't there stimulus going on and how is that going to affect propping things up? There's always 
the talking heads in the background of commodities like gold. Heck, there's, of course, the big one of Bitcoin that is so cool and fun to talk about now. So from all of those things that are going on, what do you see in the world of straight investing where people should be looking to put their money and also how they should be cautious based on all of the different factors to consider right now? No, I, I mean, first of all, you covered a great ground and, and, and gave fantastic context because you're right. It, there's there's a lot, um, you know, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of the analysts that I pay attention to, regardless of, of what their bent is, agree that, that, you know, there's likely potential for volatility, not necessarily instability, but, you know, it's not like it's it's clear and smooth sailing once we all get vaccinated and everything just kind of gets back to this great place. There's still several moving elements that, um, you know, can contribute to, you know, not necessarily what I call, you know, an, an escalator ride can still be a little bit more of a roller coaster. So, um, you know, I think the first thing that I would say to anyone is the cautionary tale part, Right. Uh, you hear, you see it, it's advertised, right? You know, get in on this or do this. And it's, and so, you know, I think most of us intuitively understand, Not, I'm not just talking about diversification, but there's never just one thing, right? You know, that you just, boom, I got in at the right time, knocked it out of the park, and now I'm a millionaire. Th- those stories, I, I, I don't know. I don't really think they exist. Maybe they do for like one, two or three people that just, I don't know, got lucky or, or really saw something that other people didn't. But, you know, I think I think my my place of caution is, you know, don't think that, OK, now it's gold's time or now it's Bitcoin's time or whatever it is. Not to suggest that you can't consider, you know, a, a holding or, or, you know, allocations that could in, involve some of that. But, I, I you know, I, I would caution people away from trying to figure out what's going to be next, because, the answer is uh, throughout all of investing history is whatever it might be for a period of time, it never is forever. And it certainly never is for a long period of time. So, you know, I think now is a really good time to a reassess your risk appetite, because sometimes when you go through an experience, you know, the pandemic is, has tried all of our emotions, maybe not necessarily specific to investing, but it's it's kind of put a negative kind of framework for a lot of people. So try to step away from that, maybe reevaluate how you're feeling about risk and then try to be opportunistic. You know, um, I think that there are still a lot of really good opportunities from an investing standpoint to dial into certain sectors or certain uh, parts of the market that a, maybe you have a real affinity for. I, I can say for myself, you know, some of the genomics and some of the the, the medical science and technology areas have, have been an interest that I've, you know, seen, you know, some opportunities in as well. So, you know, maybe you're interested in, in travel and, and hopefully all of us, fingers crossed, travel is going to come back to a certain extent, right? So there can be opportunities there as well. Um, and then I think the last thing, and I know we traded uh, emails about this a little bit, you know, the opportunity that for so many of us to connect to the things that are that we would call personal values right and and what there is now in in a very significant way and it's not a fad so i i always say this this is not a fad this is a part of the investing landscape that that anyone and and perhaps a lot of people should consider 
in what's called socially responsible investing or the the SRI or the acronym ESG. Um, that there are opportunities for you to invest in a manner that aligns up. If you have c- certain personal values, whether they be diversity and inclusion, green economy, um, re- you know, renewables, what, whatever that is, really, uh, the investing landscape now has a lot of ways to invest that way. So you can say, you know, I'm a, I'm a values driven person and now I want my money to also align with those values. And I maybe didn't think about it that way before. Now that's a big opportunity. That's not to suggest everybody should do that, but I think I'm seeing a growing number of people becoming aware of that. And that's now kind of a new consideration that, you know, people are wrestling with. That is true. And for people that are not aware, gosh, at this point, it seems like there's an ETF and dare I say mutual fund for almost every way you want to slice your portfolio. Taking a couple of those points that you made, you talked about sectors. My plan of attack tends to be have a certain foundation that's relatively far reaching for the broader market. And then once you have that foundation, a certain allocation may go to certain sectors. Do you think of that the same way before people would zero in on, yeah, you mentioned, I think kind of like a, like a healthcare or, or technology sector, or do you think that they can go right into those slices right at the get-go, even when they're first starting to build their portfolio? You know, I think the, the tendency is to want to overweight into something that you think is going to win. I mean, that's everybody's tendency. And so, but usually I think that our practice more often than not is, you know, to try to kind of have the core of, of any kind of model really be an engine that that is somewhat comprehensive, but but well-rounded, and then take certain percentages and be opportunistic, whether that's kind of like almost like a sector rotation type of strategy, if, if it seems like, you know, because again, not every sector is going to win for an extended period of time, uh, but to really try to, you know, take certain risk opportunities where that's where you can really get some, some good, healthy delta and growth, but not necessarily. And that's the great thing about, you know, what's available to us, you know, whether it's ETFs or some really refined uh, investing strategies that aren't, you know, it's no longer the best way to win is just to try to track an index. And that's still kind of, you know, a lot of the common generalities that I think people are out there subscribe to. Okay, well, you know, I can build out kind of an index-based portfolio and at least certainly I'm accomplishing some diversification and, you know, I probably am mitigating some cost factors, et cetera. And that's fine. And, and maybe that's the comfort level for a lot of people just to kind of stay the course. But I really think that if you're looking to do some things that are a little bit more opportunistic or strategic for yourself, then that's where, you know, you can still have that kind of be a core. But now is really where you can dial into certain elements, you know, find an ETF that that really is in a certain basket within a certain sector that really can pop, uh, you know, look at PE ratios, uh, look at trading ranges, Um you know, I, I mean, some simple things that I, I think some people don't necessarily think about, especially if you're looking at, you know, if you like to have individual stocks in some of that, you know, if you got a, you know, a Robinhood account or a trading account or whatever that is. Um, I, I, one of the things I pay attention to is just look at your 52-week trading range, right? What, what are your highs and your lows? Well, if, you're, if you see something, especially a stock that you feel or a company that maybe you feel is going to be around and has 
you know, some longevity to it, but you see it's trading at the lower range of what it has been for the last 52 weeks. Part of you probably has to think, well, how much lower could that go versus how much could it go in the opposite direction in terms of where I find it, right? And and maybe that kind of a mentality helps you, you know, dial into some of those things that you might have a, an affinity for or opportunities within a particular sector that you think really work to your advantage. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, I think it's what you would describe is kind of what I think we try to subscribe to more often than not is, you know, have a good kind of core and then take this little like, you know, element, you know, a percentage, 20, 30 or whatever it is and say, I'm going to dial in and try to get some additional growth, but not subject the entirety of the thing to to that level of risk. Because if it doesn't pay off, then I'm only really, you know, I, I'm, I'm minimizing what my downside capture is. In other words, as well, you talked about risk. I've always read basically if you have money in assets that basically are above what your risk tolerance is and you're losing sleep over it, well, there's other versions of value than just the return on investment. (laughs) In this case, again, the hours of sleep that you get at night. So I would imagine that also plays into, again, that base and then the additional dollars that you you're putting out to stretch your eventual return. Yeah, I, I you hit the nail on the head. You know, I, not that investing in whatever capacity we do it in is always going to be fun, happy, and exciting. There's always going to be inherent moments where you're like, oh boy. But I think you know you you really want to have a kind of a ceiling as to how much you you know, you should only take that so far. And if, and if really you're, you're not able to feel good on a consistent basis, then there's two things that I would say there. One, you know, try to step away from that and really figure out why that is. Because if it's, if, if it's tied into what you're investing in or, or what risk you're at, then we, you know, you got to look at that. But maybe if, if some of it is maybe you, you need, you know, uh, to work with a professional or to get some additional advice or just kind of get it outside of your own framework and you need somebody to help you kind of think differently. Um, and that's maybe the other opportunity as well um, to, you know, say, Hey, maybe, maybe, especially if I've been doing it myself a lot, maybe now it's time for me to engage, you know, an advisor or, you know, and there's a lot of ways that you can do that. You don't have to, you know, necessarily sign up for a $2,500 financial planner to do something, but, you know, figure out what that can look like and, and always, you know, they can take advantage of the professionals that are out there. There's so many good advisors that run a lot of different kinds of practices. And there's definitely one that I think can be a fit for just about anybody. So. When you're talking about looking at like that 52 week, I'll call them bookends almost basically to see if something is, at a price that is something that you would want to invest in at the time. Now, obviously, you look hard enough, presumably you're going to find something that fits that category, but maybe this is just my perspective and I haven't dug deep enough. It seems like right now when you step back, those are harder and harder to find, it feels like at the moment, uh, especially given the... Any movement from interest rates, for example, and we see this dip very, very quickly. And of course, we don't know what that's going to look like. Um, needless to say, with the stimulus money that's starting to come out and there could be another one on the horizon, maybe even more, we don't know necessarily how that's going to move the markets. Do you feel like there's a certain 
sector or even a, a different type of investment that broad brush looks good to you right now? I'll give you one other quick example of like real estate, right? Now that's not straight like stock market, but prices are as high as I can remember and houses moving so super quickly. But how long can that last, last while we're seeing job you know, numbers be not as good as they were, obviously, from the pandemic as, as an example? So, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll answer it in two parts. Uh, one that is more market-based and one that might ruffle a couple of people's feathers, and that's okay. Um, so in the market side, you know, I think, like, for example, um, you know, think of industries right now that have been most significantly impacted by the pandemic in the short term, right? Certainly, okay. So tourism, restaurant, right? Things that involve now, and, you've, and if you think about that, obviously those industries are going to reflect that the pricing of the stocks in those industry baskets should be reflective of what's happening. But if you're finding, if you're seeing companies then in those in those particular situations that are, are let's first say for the sake of argument, undervalued because of what's happened, but do you think that they're going to go away? Because some will, some have, right? We've seen certain retail institutions fold, bankrupt, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, maybe maybe in the airlines or, you know, maybe in hotel or whatever, you know, like, let's think of just the 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 uh, impact to those major firms and the price valuation of now where we are versus what could happen in the next three to five years. That's where I think that, you know, that's just kind of a mentality that we can have to try to find those little nuggets of opportunity. And I, I know I've mentioned certain um, you know, sectors that are obvious. There are a lot that aren't, but, you know, just think that way. All right. If I think of this company and I see its price as it relates to what it does, what it delivers, and also what market it's in, and is it still undervalued to, or, or do I see, you know, if I'm thinking of an over under, would I say it has further down to go or likely a lot higher to go over the next two, three, five years. Right. And you start to think about that. I think that's where people will find a lot of things that, you know, will it not cuff off the ball in the next six months or even 16? I don't know. But I think you can really find some undervalued things that can take you a, a pretty healthy distance for, you know, three, five, even 10 years and longer. I think now is a really good time to get that. Now, here's the other side of that. So one thing that, uh, again, a lot of people kind of close their ears up when they hear this, and that's okay. I'm still going to say it. One thing that investment a lot of people are missing out as an opportunity on is in life insurance. And, you know, again, I, I have to say this for what it is. Um, using that as a part of your portfolio, you really have to understand how it works and what it is. And I don't, you know, we could, we could talk for now just on this. I'm going to really try to cover the highlights and talk to why I'm saying that as a statement. And it actually doesn't necessarily have anything to as much to do with life insurance as a, as a financial instrument as it does what I think both personally and professionally is going to happen when it comes to the tax situation that we face as a nation. Now, it's no surprise to anybody that listens to this, how much stimulus money we spent in the last literally 18 months as a nation. Trillions, the most amount we've ever spent in history. I think some estimate six tri trillion with a T. That's a T. Right? So that you look at the national debt situation, you just kind of consider the low rate environment as well with what that means for that debt impact. 
it's very hard for me to not see the math working out to our disfavor, meaning we're going to have to at some point recapture, repay for this kind of stuff, et cetera. Can't keep, we just can't keep doing this. So if, if we agree on that premise, right, that, that there is likely to have some kind of a tax impact, then right now is the opportunity to be finding an asset that can be, you know, potentially bought at one of the lowest rates we may have in the next, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, right? So, so just take a tax approach to what you're thinking about as well, because that might, whether it's life or whether it's something else, that's a hat we rarely put on enough when it comes to investing. I think the other thing is people don't understand the power of it as an asset. So I will talk about this real quick. Life insurance as an asset is the only asset in existence that gives you access to two buckets of money. The one that you come to the table with and the one that the insurance company gives to you as a promise. No other asset in existence has that, right? And what I mean very specifically is when you structure a policy properly, you have the ability to access the death benefit, which is all that is is an obligation of the insurance company to pay somebody a stated amount of money. So that's the insurance company's risk. They know at some point, this is the total amount I could be paying out whether it's to your beneficiaries when you die or whether it's to you while you're alive in the form of loans, it's still the same risk to them. But that's huge, right? Because taking that out while you're alive, structured the right way, should be tax-free upon receipt. And we all understand it's very hard to find things that are treated that way from a taxation standpoint. So it was a lot more maybe than I wanted to say on that point. I think it's really good though. And I hope at least that it's thought provoking enough for you to, to think about whether it's life insurance or just think about taxes and think about what that means and how those eat into your returns, regardless of what you're investing in, because we don't pay attention enough to that. I think being smarter with taxes in and of itself is a return, right? If I don't spend 15% to uncle Sam, I just captured 15% back, right? I mean, I don't have to make that much more. I just got all this back because I'm not spending it to the government. So Hopefully that's a good, a little, a little uh, thought-provoking thing. What's interesting is if I could put my finger on one consistent piece of advice from any person I've had on the show with a financial background, the inevitability of higher taxes in the future, nobody's necessarily said when that's going to be because, again, we don't know for sure, right? But that is <laughs> the consistent prediction from every single finance person again that i've have talked to that to your point as we can't presumably continue to see the spending and the upside down federal budget without paying the piper at some point and like you said hey whatever you can avoid in taxes is like almost an immediate return on your money so yeah i am definitely a fan of your roth iras and if you have access to a roth 401k you know absolutely do it and of course there's other conversions you can do if you're above those thresholds things like that um it almost seems like the question of whether or not you're going to be making less money when you're getting ready to retire so you actually want the traditional and then convert it is becoming a distant <laughs> consideration just the way that people seem to be predicting taxes will go because yeah, you may be in a lower tax bracket at that point, but probably all tax brackets are going to be a higher level. So less and less of a window or a chance that you're going to be able to convert at a lower rate at some point. And yeah. Let's dig into the 
life insurance a little bit more. And it's good that I think you prefaced it with some people will switch off when they hear some of those considerations immediately. And I'll just say, I definitely have learned a lot from Dave Ramsey. And I think you're probably aware that there's these famous rants from him of term life versus universal or whole life and all of that. Right. And, but I'm curious from, from your standpoint. So emphasis where you're talking about the tax advantage and so on is, is it worth considering the universal and whole life policies as basically an investment rather than your actual insurance policy, mainly because if, if you're not good with money, right, you could potentially squander what is supposed to be the death benefit potentially. So what do you see those considerations playing out as? No, I, yeah, no, I, I, I'm very aware of, of those that, uh, of what is said and why it's said. Um, and, and, you know, when I talk about this, I'm, I'm a myths versus facts kind of person. So the only things that I'm going to ever recommend are things that I can quantify because I have studied, I have data and I have, you know, ways to illustrate, okay, this is what this is, how it's supposed to work. And as long as you understand all the moving parts, how it can fit. Now, I think that there's a couple of things to, to think about here. The first one is, and let's 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 do a um, let's take the safe withdrawal approach, and let's just compare two buckets of money. Okay, one bucket of money you have five million dollars in. The other bucket of money you have two million dollars in. Which bucket of money do you want to have when you retire? Okay. A lot of people say that, and it's and it is and it isn't a trick question. the The real answer is though it depends on how it's taxed, right? And why do I say that? Is to say if I were to just say let's take a four percent, which by the way the safe withdrawal now based on a lot of what the data, the statisticians and the analysts are saying, it's no longer four percent. It's probably closer to two. But just for simple math, because I don't have a calculator and my head doesn't work very well without it. So five million, four percent of five million is two hundred thousand dollars a year. But if that's in an IRA, what tax bracket does that put me at? I don't know the percentage, but it's one of the higher, obviously higher than four <laughs> percent. So let's let's just say let's just say again for simple math, even though this isn't an actual bracket, let's say that that's thirty percent, which is not a bracket, but just again because. My, my brain is is not smart enough to really dial into this. So if it was 30%, that's $60,000 in taxes. So my net of 200 minus the 60 is 140, right? So that 5 million is really only generating 140 safely. Now, how much if I could take out, let's say, 5% off that 2 million? without paying taxes on it, or five and a half, right? All of a sudden, if I have a tax-free asset, the amount that I can keep is all of it, right? So I don't need nearly as much of a number as I do in that scenario, right? With this, this, this dichotomous scenario, where, and, I, and I probably should have used three, three million instead of five, but, you know, so if, if, We'll just we'll, now we'll change it in the middle of the example. But if it's three million and I'm taking four percent, that's 120. But that's 
That's all to me, right? I don't have to worry about that 30% off the top and all the other stuff, right? So I think that when we see it in those terms, that, that, that the whole scenario is really not to try to trick anybody. It's just to literally illustrate this is what we're talking about when it comes to the power of having a tax-sensitive approach to building wealth, not just this accumulation and I don't really like what this is because some people say it's not an investment. Well, whether you want to call it an investment or not, you understand how it works and how you then use it as an asset. It's very hard to, to turn away and say, well, I don't want that because you call it life insurance. Right. Um, so I, I guess that's why I wanted to kind of have that piece to answer that. Now, I think you really do. So first of all, things that I don't like about the insurance industry that I think do everybody a disservice. Life insurance is not the end all be all of assets. And sometimes people position as, oh, it's the solution to every problem that you have. I don't know what your concern is. You have a budget problem, whole life insurance or what like, okay, so there's a lot of that out there. That's not right. We said that earlier, like there's not one asset. It's not gold. It's not Bitcoin. It's certainly not life insurance. So, so, you know, as long as it's, so, but what context it fits in, I think people miss out how powerful it is, especially for people who are young. You're investing in your health. What a great investment to make because right now I'm probably as healthy as I'm going to be. I, I would love to say 10 years from now I'm going to still be this healthy, but the chances are that may not be as true. And so it's a great way to actually take advantage of that and the way that the insurance company manages that risk for you. The younger you are, the better the numbers work out to your advantage. You can put less in and get more out. And that's the other part of it is that when you really see how you can design it to work for you, and really tailor it because not every policy operates the same. But the great thing is there's so many ways to cut this cake. I can like, you know, I, you can find something that if you really want to say, look, this is how much I want to put in, how long I want to put it in for and what I want it to do for me at some point, there's a way to do that. So that's why I think, you know, I, I hope more people will at least look at it and see it for what it is and work with somebody that can design things for them properly but don't compare it. It's not a mutual fund. It doesn't compare to an investment. That's not what it is. They don't compete. They complement. And I think that that's the opportunity, right? If we're putting money in all these other places that are going to have certain tax consequences that we know may be less favorable, and we're not putting it in here, we're missing that opportunity. And I think that that's why I say, like, let's look at it. Let's dig into it for yourself. Work with somebody that really understands it for you. And you know, then you can say, now I've looked at it. Do I still think this makes sense? Maybe it doesn't. But um, I, I think more people would be surprised at what they can do. I, th I think we're saying similar things as far as I, the term insurance for those types of products almost seems like it should have a completely different name because the, the amount that I know about it and like we're discussing is really more of a function of investment than anything else. And that's what I meant by the question of Sometimes when I land on this, it seems like for people to just make sure they're not messing with the insurance part, maybe you do just have your term life insurance. And that is absolutely what it is for if you do, God forbid, die prematurely with you know a lot of responsibility on your plate and you can't find a way to structure the other policies in such a way that you can rely on the death benefit, whatever the case may be. You could potentially look at them both that way. But yeah, from the tax advantage standpoint, uh, I know for myself, I have more to, to learn about it 
um, as far as a tool for sheltering from taxes, potentially using it as uh, a tool for purchases, things like that, even as well of, of the money going out and then how it comes back in. It's also a good point about comparing to a mutual fund or something like that. Because I think the other knock that you will tend to hear, and frankly, I agree with the way that this is presented, is if you take – if you can even find exactly what the assets are that the company that's giving you the policy uh, have in there, of course, the question is, well, what's in it for them if I didn't buy the exact same uh, investments that they have – they got to be getting something somewhere, right? So am I going to be underperforming based on whatever asset classes or so on are in there? And I would assume the answer is probably yes. But back to your point of the taxes part, it's like, well, if you have them structured in such a way where you're getting that extra benefit of the taxes, then presumably, potentially, um, you're still getting more back even if you try to do a comparison of same investment in a mutual fund or an ETF compared to that investment within these types of policies. Is that tracking about right? Yeah. And, and that's the thing. It's, you know, um, people assume that the insurance company, you know, that these are policies designed to just get the insurance company to win. Couldn't be further from the right. It's not. First of all, if you just consider the regulatory implications of how you have to file just to have an insurance policy that you can sell, you would understand that regulatorily, you're, you're not allowed to file a policy that only benefits the insurance company. That's not how insurance works. It just that's a, so that's a myth, a, a pure, simple myth. Now, in terms of performance, and again, it depends on the policy type, right? How universal performs a little bit different. Is it index versus whole life, and what type of dividend history? You'll find, regardless of what you're looking at, most of them perform pretty well for what they are. Um, there are some dividend histories out there with some of the major whole life carriers that. You look at that and you consider the interest rate environment they're in, you'd be like, holy cow, that's not just impressive. It's like, why didn't I know about this? Because the margin of what they're able to do because of how they manage risk, and, and the thing about it is it's managing risk very differently, right? Mortality risk for the insurance company. Just think about this. Why is it why is it different? And why could they generate dividends like, you know, above 5% when the 10-year treasury is below 2? How is that possible? Where are they coming up with that? Well, it's a different risk approach. They are they are dealing with a bucket of money that has a at a macro level these death benefit scenarios built off of a large mortality table. So they're not really as concerned. Now, don't get me wrong, short term, you know, the interest rate environment has an impact on everything. So I don't want to I don't want to dismiss that. But what I mean is when you really think about what their what their risk concern is, they're not concerned about liquidating this massive amount in a short period of time. That's not a concern because that's not really what this pool of money is 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 for, right? So when you understand when you think about it that way and you're like, oh yeah, well that's you know, I could invest in this ETF and I could pull the money out in two months, twenty-four months, right? Like I could get it to grow and then take it out. Well, yeah, that that's true. But this type of an asset is really counting on you probably putting more in, leaving it for a longer period of time. They have a contractual obligation to pay out somebody a death benefit. So they have this big nut that they've got to manage and mitigate. It's very different. Um, so I just, you know, the mechanics of it all. And when you really look at things from a comparative standpoint, you see that it the performance is not just adequate. It's probably better than adequate. 
but it's not, you know, it, it's never, it's an apples to oranges. If I say, all right, this as an investment and I line up a mutual fund as an investment, but this, it's just an inappropriate comparison. And they, that's what trips a lot of people up. Not all, not all investments are the same and you can't compare them like they are, you know, not I mean, forget the tax component, just really how they work mechanically. Um, so that's why I think if you get out of the competitive mindset that I think a lot of, um, I don't want to call them talking heads, but a lot of people out there that kind of say, you know, this is better. I, I very much disagree with that type of thinking because they're, they don't compete. I can tell you, you know, an investment in a mutual fund is designed to do one thing that other things cannot do for you. Life insurance may design to do something else that a mutual fund can't do for you. Question needs to be then, how do you allocate things into each that makes sense for you because you understand the value that they offer? And don't try to line them all up head to head and say, well, this one's clearly the best because of some kind of arbitrary matrix that doesn't work, right? It just doesn't. And, and again, I, I'm not even talking taxes, but taxes is a great equalizer because that <laughs> that changes the landscape considerably. Um, so, you know, if, if we, you know, we, I mean, we, we've said the same thing, you know, over and over. It's, it's figure it out for yourself to see if it's an opportunity and, does, and understand how they can be designed, how you can put in pennies on the dollar and get dollars back and not have to pay taxes. I think that that's hugely powerful. Um, but you know, you should be doing a lot of other things as well, right? If if you put too much in insurance and you're not able to save in other places, you're doing something wrong. Everything has to have a fit. What you just mentioned kind of alludes to what my other question was going to be there as far as the premium amount. Uh, that's something that I would make sure people understand, right? The, one big difference between, well, we'll stick with the mutual fund example. Of course, once I buy a mutual fund, I have the mutual fund. That's that's the asset that I bought. I'm not required the next month to buy the same amount of that asset or, or so on and so forth. So if I fall on hard times, well, I just stop buying the asset or I cash it in, whatever the case may be. With these life insurance policies, there is a required amount that you're paying in order to keep that policy active. Uh, so from my perspective, making sure people understand their budgeting and like you said, that you're you're doing the right things. You have enough for your house. You have enough for food, et cetera, et cetera. Sounds basic, but uh, that is something I think people that would need to, to keep in mind. Curious, do you have any idea of like default rates or anything like that? Do people go in not understanding that part of it? Yeah, no, I do. I mean, I, I, we, we look at it as a practice because we do, you know, we do insurance investments. We do all this stuff. So we, we look at trends because that's that matters. And it matters to us as practitioners to be able to help people know what, what's really happening. Interestingly, and you might think that this intuitively makes a lot of sense, uh, rescission and, and lapse rates have actually gone down during the pandemic because one thing people really realize is how important this stuff is, especially if something can happen to you. Now, outside of that, I, you know, that, that'll all equal out over time. Um, in general, what we see is one of two things. I'm only going to describe two scenarios. And unfortunately, um, I think fortunately, more people are in one bucket than they are the other. But improperly designed policies have, a, a, you know, statistically between, you know, a, a 18 to as high as 56% lapse rate before maturity. And the reason is, is they're not designed properly. Um, what, what we look at, you know, again, the metadata, if you kind of drill into that more, there can be a lot of reasons why that is. 
more often than not, I think it's it's either not that it didn't fit the budget, but that it wasn't properly explained. How is this supposed to work? And and then people just like, I don't know why I'm doing it this way. And they stop. And that's unfortunate. So, you know, with anything, it doesn't matter whether it's insurance, commodity, stock, bond, whatever, you really need to know what you're getting into. How is it supposed to work? So, you know, if that happens, I think that that goes a long way. The other side, though, those that are really properly de- uh, designed, we see, you know, very, very, I mean, really probably the lowest of most blocks of life insurance in terms of lapse uh, and rescission. So people keep them because they were built correctly. They are using them properly. They understood what they're meant to do for them. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of, I, I think that people don't realize how flexible of an asset it is. People think, you know, life insurance is like, I pay for a long period of time. It doesn't have value right away. I got to like, there's so many ways to do that. There are policies right now that you can design where 80% of your premium in the first year is in cash value and available to you. 80%. You know, that some can get you, stretch you closer to 85. I mean, you know, the idea that you won't be able to turn around and access some of it doesn't necessarily have to be the case. Now, does that mean that that's the right policy for you? Maybe not. But, you know, there's there's a lot of flexibility. And so that's why I think, you know, we go back to, you know, make it understand it, work with somebody that can really design it the right way and it can really fit and work, but it just shouldn't, everything has to be in proportion. And so, um, you know, I think that people should have good confidence to say, if this is something that I really think could be a valuable part of what I'm trying to do as I build collective wealth for myself in a lot of ways over time, then you can absolutely find a really well-designed plan to put in place to fit and work, pay off in the short, intermediate and long-term um, especially, you know, when we see some of that tax change start to, to play out and, and it will, I mean, right now the current legislation is designed to, to sunset and go up, I think in 2026, I can't remember which year. And so all, all, by the way, for everybody listening, all that needs to happen for our taxes to go up is for Congress to do nothing. And the way it's going, I think uh, they will do something that will probably make it go faster, <laughs> at least if you believe the current news. <laughs> We obviously we can't control legislative risk, but I, I don't think it's so much of a risk. I just think it's math, and I think most people recognize that. You hear, you see a lot of stories and people being interviewed on both sides of the aisle, and everybody gets it, right? It is at some point just numbers, <laughs> and numbers aren't political; they're just they're just numbers. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. And again, to hang on to what you mentioned for research here, that's one of the common threads, right? For any product is. Make sure you understand the investment that you're getting into. Don't be afraid to ask over and over again until it really sticks, because if you don't understand it, then you're not really going to have an idea of what to expect from it, et cetera, et cetera. A hundred percent. And that's the thing. Every person should know that there is a fit for you. And if you haven't been presented it, then keep pushing. Or maybe that just means it isn't right. You know, it's not right as an opportunity. Um, but you know, I think there really is a specialization now and we're really starting to see this right in the, in the financial landscape, you really need to work almost with an insurance advisor. And I, don't, I, I use that word meaning that not the licensed way, but, but somebody who has a depth and a breadth of knowledge to, to tailor insurance to you as a person. And, and I'm talking all kinds of insurance, not just life insurance, right? You know, 
we have in a society really done ourselves a disservice because insurance is now so much of a commodity that the only way most people think about it is in a negative sense. And they all think that they're paying too much for whatever they have. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's not a price grab. It should never be. The thing that I think is like, will my insurance be there when I need it? And if you can't answer that right, I don't care what I paid for it. If it doesn't show up when I need it, it doesn't matter. All those premiums go out the window. So my hope is that more people will say, wait a minute, let's des- let's just sit here and, and think about what's the risk that I need to take, that I want an insurance company to take care of, and then work with a professional to take that risk profile out to the market and give me a bunch of quotes now that I know that the policy is built right. And then we can find the lowest premium for what I need. Because if I do it the other way around and I just buy cheap, well, guess what happens more often than not is that you get what you buy. You do get what you pay for. Um, so again, from life insurance to auto insurance to everything else, work with a real good insurance professional that'll talk to you about risk, designing a policy that meets your needs, and then can market that policy and get competitive quotes. Go through that type of a process. Because you do that when you're talking about investments, don't you? You figure out your risk profile and you do that, and then you line up the investments that fit the risk profile. So take the same approach, even though insurance is not sexy and not fun to talk about, the consequences are, are as significant, right? You know, you don't want to get in a car accident and realize, oh, by the way, you know, I didn't have enough to cover not just my damage, but all the damage and now the lawsuit for the person that I just totaled. Now I got to come out 60 grand because I didn't, because I only, <laughs> I only paid for what I needed, Right. Because I know what I need. All of us do. Sorry, I don't. I'm not trying to throw anybody advertising under the bus by saying it. But again, I just it's it is it is important, right? We got to start thinking differently about this and not think that everything is just a game to save more money. I don't even know. I assume the company still exists, and Lord knows I don't really watch network TV like I used to, so I don't see the commercials anyway. But I guess I won't say the name of the auto insurance, but one of their taglines was minimum coverage for minimum budgets. I loved it. <laughs> just because just I'm like, well, you're, you're not hiding anything. That's, <laughs> that's the product that you have. Uh, they had another slogan too that always made me laugh. <laughs> so anyway, I just thought of that when you're mentioning kind of the, you get what you pay for. Well, let me give you a completely different question, a little bit on the same path that we're on as far as government intervention of course, there's continuous heating up of student loan forgiveness. Didn't really quite make it into the stimulus. Well, it sort of did in the form of uh, being tax-free for anybody that does get it, but the actual amounts didn't quite make it through. But sure feels like, if you believe what you're reading, that some version of that may be coming through. What are you telling your clients or what is your perspective on that kind of intervention? Should you be counting on uh, relief like that? And for example, be saying, all right, well, I can invest this money because pretty soon this amount of my student loan is going to be gone. Or uh, do you say, you know what, <laughs> believe it when you see it when it comes to government? Yeah, I think I'm probably closer to the latter. And, and it's not as popular of an opinion when I say it. But, you know, I, for me, I had student loans. I literally just paid the teeny piddly amount left over off this past year with some of the stimulus stuff that came in. Cause I was just tired of seeing that little tiny amount come out every single month. And I was so tired that I still had any, uh, in my life. Um, I, I don't know. I never got student loans with the idea that I wouldn't have to pay them off myself. So personally, like I don't, 
you know, I just, I don't have, I don't subscribe to the idea that I want to take on debt and then just get relieved of it. Um, and that's not a popular thing to say. I realize, uh, especially since I think that the, the bigger issue and evil that I hope is changing and I, I see is changing is the fact that the cost of education is grossly disproportionate to what you're able to get out of it now. It just, I'm sorry, it costs too much money to get an education. And that's not right. Uh, and it's been rapidly accelerating for years. So, you know, that needs to change. And I'd rather the government maybe think more about, okay, well, how do we not worry about the debt side? Let's, let's, let's take the other side of that equation down and let, like, let's bring these costs back into a more realistic alignment so that way it can be more affordable for people to go through and, and have a good educational experience. Um, but, you know, I think it's one of those things where, right, you know, it sounds great because there's clearly a debt burden that this has created for a significant part of society. And the younger you are, the, the closer you have are to college, you, you feel it. Everybody feels it. Um, so I, I see the political side of that as well, right? Why we kind of want to tout that. Bottom line is, though, it's, if it goes back to the money, how are you going to do it? No, but again, I mean, I, I pay attention. So I'm a native Washingtonian. I'm born and raised. I've, I've been in D.C. essentially most of my life, all my life, right? So I've seen this for years. And in this type of a situation, it's really a function of what is the legislative mechanism to come up with the money to do what you're saying you want to do? And nobody's answered that yet. And to your point, could it? Could somebody answer that and get it passed? Sure. But do I think that that's reasonable and likely compared to a lot of the other competing interests that are going to vie for capital and money? Probably not. And so, you know, again, look, it's 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 Congress. They can do a ton of crazy things that I, I don't think are even reasonable or possible. Anything could happen. Right. I don't have my crystal ball. I left it at the shop. I'm sorry. But I think more realistically, I would I would certainly not advise anybody to count on that or think it's more likely. And I think you just really then want to treat whatever debt situation you have as I've got to figure out the best way to manage this effectively for my life and also be fiscally balanced, um, you know, where, you know, and there's the, the Dave Ramsey debt snowball can be really, really helpful. But you, you really do have to work the best levers for saving spending, debt reduction, et cetera. And there's, there's a, you know, there needs to be a yin and a yang to that because sometimes I can tell you this and you've probably seen this, right? People will be so rabid at pursuing getting out of debt that they don't save and they don't prepare themselves for other things in life. And guess what happens? Life happens. And all of a sudden, since I don't have anywhere to go when I need money, because life happened, where do I go? Back into debt, right? So there's, there has to be a balanced approach to all of that. Um, and so that's kind of where I land. And yes, it's it's a lot less popular than wanting to say, I think it's all going to be forgiven. I wish it was. And I look like a fool for having just paid it all off if it happens in another year. But guess what? You know, it, it, it's all right. I'll, I'll, I'll survive. <laughs> I shouldn't even say this because, gosh, it could be its own show. And this is purely my conjecture whenever the topic comes up is the thing that makes me a little nervous about the precedent is... Well, here's an example. I actually was able to take advantage of at the time it was before the first home buyer uh, credit came through. Before that, people probably don't remember it was actually a uh, 
interest-free loan. And then the next year, so I ended up getting the interest-free loan. And then the very next year, they made it a credit and it was free money completely. So I even missed out on that. And the example there is like, look, people were hurting in the home crisis and so on. Nobody went backwards and restructured their mortgages or anything like that. But that's what you're saying for student loan. So I think you, you kind of alluded to it of like, Yes, college is too expensive. I don't think anybody at this point would disagree with that. But that's all forward-looking. That's all changing the rules for tomorrow. What makes me nervous about the precedent of going backwards and changing the precedent for, like you said, you know, people that paid off their loans, boy, what an idiot I was <laughs> for actually getting rid of that. And, and it makes me wonder for that kind of a precedent with things like your 401ks and your IRAs and these other tax advantaged things, who's to say to pay for some of these things that they'll retroactively change some of those rules that the money that you thought was going to be sheltered up until your retirement or whenever you're trying to use it, now Pandora's box is open and they can make changes to that at that point. So again, I know that is a hugely long conversation. And that's just a random theory that I have of, 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 again, from a precedent standpoint, what that ends up looking like. And again, I think it'll continue to be in the news. Also, to your point, there are plenty of things that get brought up for government ways to spend money. <laughs> so who knows if uh, something like student debt would necessarily be one that, that continues to make enough noise to make its way through. So well, with that, Brian, I'm going to go ahead and let you go. Do you want to give folks your contact info um, where they maybe can find you on social media, any events or promotions you want to let people know about? Yeah, no, I definitely love to, to talk to anybody, questions, comments, help. Uh, I'm here to be a resource. Uh, I don't sell people anything. So please reach out to me. And I love to, to connect. Um, you can find me in a couple of places. LinkedIn's probably the best place because uh, that's where mo- much of uh, my content. Uh, I do have a podcast. I write articles and all that, but a lot of those through LinkedIn. So, um, you know, instead of having to go to a bunch of different places, usually you'll see a lot of that stuff in my feed and my posts. Um, our, our company website is www.thehaney, that's spelled H-A-N-E-Y company.com. Uh, and I also have uh, like a professional speaker site, which is brianjhaney.com or www.brianjhaney.com. Uh, so any one of those sites, um, you can find me, but I'm, I'm, I'm fairly Googleable. The problem is that there's a Christian singer also named Brian Haney. So usually his stuff shows up first. You got to go a little bit further to find me. I, I am, I'm the financial Brian Haney, not the artist, <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, please. I would, I would love to hear from your audience and anybody that wants to chat about anything. Perfect. And of course, I'll put your information into the show notes to make it easy for folks to find you. Again, I appreciate you being on the show and we'll be in touch. Awesome. Thanks, Greg. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or all other major podcasting applications to be notified of our latest episode. You can also join our conversation at suburbanfolk.com or any social media site, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the handle Suburban Folk. Thank you for listening to my daddy.